This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome to today's Glance at the Buddha's Teachings. Actually, we're not examining so much what the Buddha himself said, but more of an explanation of an explanation of an explanation. It's a short text called The Three Principal Aspects of the Path, a teaching by the founder of the Gelugpa tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, Lama Tsongkhapa. He based his graduated path teachings on the explanation of the Indian master, Atisha, that came down to us as the text, A Lamp on the Path to Enlightenment. That, of course, came out of Atisha's own intelligence and what his teachers had taught him, which they had got from their teachers and so on, right up to the Buddha and his immediate disciples. This is what it means for a teaching to have an unbroken lineage. Last week, we discussed the first part of this last verse and said that the four powerful rivers Tsongkhapa speaks of here are the four causal torrents or rivers as defined by Gelek Rinpoche as ignorance, wrong view, desire, and attachment, and the rivers of ongoing birth, aging, sickness, and death, resulting from actions motivated by those causal torrents. We then moved on to the bonds of karma and joined Beth Roth in telling her kids about karma, using as an example a wound to their dog Luna. And we finished last week's program with the following quote from Ajahn Sujito as he explained karma in his book Karma and the End of Karma. Being born is old karma that brings us back into the predicament of existing within the domain of cause and effect, with the potential to keep rolling in it. Having inherited the effect of being embodied, we are affected by food, health and the climate. Along with this comes the potential for defending, seeking nourishment and procreation. Mind is attuned to respond to all this instinctively with fight, freeze, flight drives that can kick in at a moment's notice. And with mind, there comes the awareness of ageing, sickness and death. And with that, separation from the loved and being disagreeably affected by that, and furthermore, being seemingly impotent to do anything about it. Thus, the rolling on of samsara traps us in its spin. In other words, we take birth under the influence of an action we created in a previous life. Thus the karma bringing about the birth is old karma. But once we have a body, we inevitably once more fall under the domination of the law of cause and effect, especially with respect to our mind stream. We are thus programmed to create more karma. Like all the other creatures around us, we are heavily conditioned to defend ourselves, to look for food, drink and the conditions that keep us alive and healthy, and to create offspring. Of course, Giving in to these conditions, we must necessarily be competitive and so are surrounded by many dangers. 
the mind being ready at any moment to fight, flee or freeze in response. We are also becoming increasingly aware that we cannot stay young and virile. Our faculties will degenerate. We will become ill and we will inevitably die. Realizing we cannot do anything about this aging sickness and death, we tend to react badly or at least inappropriately. Like, for instance, tucking death as far away in our minds as possible and never taking it into our considerations. And that leads to actions that create more negative karma, more suffering rebirths in the samsaric cycle. Ajahn Sujito continues the explanation, but before we join him again, let's take a moment to set our motivation as usual. Please think that this program will be one of the causes for you to attain enlightenment so you can help all others also reach that state in whatever way possible. Thank you. Ajahn Sujita goes on to speak about the programs we are forced to adopt by society, parents, peers and so on that inform us how to operate in terms of customs and attitudes. Our need to belong and to be at peace with our circumstances, he says, is also the basis for new karma. We pick up and store information, some useful, some not, from others and use it to interpret our present experience. Is it safe? Is it friendly? Is it allowed? Will I be valued by acquiring it? These and such like questions we use, perhaps unconsciously, to make the decisions in our lives. But he questions whether this whole process is reliable. He writes, Memories rise up that incline us one way or another. Bodily conditions arise that affect our mood. Attention span fluctuates. And the result of a conversation we had an hour ago is still stirring our hearts. Meanwhile, our social context connects us to the effects of other people's minds, each with their own interpretations and misinterpretations. So we're also affected by that. Programs get transferred or trigger off other programs and our minds get caught up in a flood of impressions, any one of which can trigger off impulses at any moment. And then he encapsulates the whole process like this. All in all, the process of karma-vipaka, that is, action and result, is like that of an ocean that can lift us up, engulf us, or sweep us in any direction. It operates through continual interplay between inherited effects as they arise in the present and the range of consequent responses and inclinations to act. The past is not dead. Its effects carry potential and the future will arise according to how we act on that. So in the light of Ajahn Sujita's description, we can perhaps see what Lama Tsongkhapa meant by the phrase, the bonds of karma, so hard to undo. It's as though we are encapsulated in a cocoon of threads that bind us as securely as any fly in a spider's web is after the attentions of a spider itself. At the risk of making a huge mountain out of a mere phrase, I would like to consider another take on karma and how it affects us. This by Bernie Glassman, a creator of the Zen Peacemakers, a group committed to peaceful social action. The vision of this group is one, and I quote, in which each person and society as a whole awaken to the interdependence of life, where all beings live in harmony, everything is included, life is sustainable, 
and suffering from violence and ignorance is extinguished. One of their many practices is to take groups of people from a variety of backgrounds, cultures and traditions to visit the concentration camp at Auschwitz-Birkenau to meditate, pray, recite the names of the dead and hold counsel. Mr. Glassman says that his experience of the interconnectedness of life is key to his understanding of karma. This is also, I think, how Thich Nhat Hanh understands karma. He, that is Bernie Glassman, not Thich Nhat Hanh, starts off describing how everything arises out of emptiness, or as the physicists would say, energy. He says, Within that emptiness, events come and go. Experiences arise and recede. They seem real, but they are nothing more than transient configurations of energy with no substance. They may seem like facts, but they are stories. The energy never changes. It doesn't have a narrative. It doesn't move forward or backwards. It doesn't grow or shrink. It has no birth, no conditioning, and no death. It has no beginning, end, or middle. It is outside time, inside time, and unaffected by time. Linear time is a perception, not a reality. So how do we translate these energetic waves into the experiences that form the building blocks of our stories? The brain has instrumentation, circuitry, that takes the energy and makes something of it, like a radio has an antenna that converts radio waves into sound. The television converts waves into a visual picture. Our brains convert energy into perception, what we think is real. Certain waves become vision and others become sound, and still others become touch or taste. The brain is a fantastic receiver, a fantastic transmitter, and a fantastic database, an absolutely amazing storage system. The sum total of everything experienced and then stored is called memory. My karma is my own unique instrumentation. My brain may convert a particular set of energy waves into some experience that I regard as real, while your brain may convert the same set of energy waves into a different experience that you consider real, but it is the same energy. Recognizing and realizing that we are individual in our circuitry, but universal in our makeup, is my definition of the enlightenment experience. Understanding that fundamental enlightenment experience is the key to what I call karma. We are everything. Our karma encompasses all the direct and indirect things that happen to us and to everyone else in the universe, and not only in our universe, but in all of the multiple universes and galaxies. In the Buddhist tradition, we call it the oneness of life. In some traditions, it is called God. I define karma based on a Chinese ideogram, which actually consists of two ideograms, one meaning indirect karma and the other meaning direct karma. When you combine these two, you get the meaning of karma, all the indirect causes and effects plus all the direct causes and effects. Bernie Glassman goes on, Direct karma is relatively easy to understand. It consists of things that are the results of the things I do, actions I take and the thoughts that I have. Direct karma is something I recognize. For example, if I bump my head, I recognize it. My direct karma is that if someone bumps me on the head, I may label the person as unintentionally hurting me or as intentionally hurting me and conclude he isn't a very nice guy. 
Whatever my conclusions, I can find a direct cause and effect between the bump on the head and my reaction. Indirect karma refers to things that have affected me without my recognition. For example, my DNA obviously affects my health, my biology and my thinking, but I'm not consciously aware of its impact. Additionally, my DNA isn't a result of one particular action. It's the result of millions of interactions that led to my ancestry, my parents' meeting and marriage, my conception and the body-mind I have now. Solar radiation might be changing me. The ozone layer might be affecting me, but I have no direct awareness of these. Since we are all interconnected, anything that anyone does affects my karma, and anything that I do affects everyone else's karma. All the direct and indirect causes affect not only me, but all beings. Individual karma, collective karma and global karma are irrelevant terms, because we are all one thing, and therefore there is nothing but changeless, formless, timeless being. There is no past, present or future. There is just now. So our experience in the moment we call now is affected by everything that has already happened or will ever happen. I may label some things as already happened and others as will happen one day, but that is a perceptual label. I may label some things as direct and others as indirect. In reality, all time and space are simply what is. Buddhists sometimes refer to this as Indra's net. Indra is a deity originally from Hindu mythology whose palace on Mount Meru sits under a net. The net stretches out in all directions, right to infinity. At each vertex of the net sits a pearl, and because the net is infinite, the pearls are likewise infinite in number. Each pearl contains a reflection of all the other pearls. So if you look closely at any given pearl, you see every other pearl that exists, all infinitely connected with one another. The whole is presented in every part, and every part is pres present in the whole. Every moment, be it present, past or future, is reflected in every other moment. He goes on to link karma to koans, those paradoxes a Zen practitioner meditates on to shock him or her out of the conceptual mind. You must know the famous one about the sound of one hand clapping. Once we are affected by an energy wave which arises out of emptiness, we label it and create a story we call experience out of it, he says. If we believe the story, we call it a fact. If we don't, we say it's a lie. If I share a truth with someone else, meaning we agree on the facts, I'll get along better with that person than if I disagree, he says. Human beings go to war with one another when they don't agree on truth. One person thinks there's a God, another one doesn't. One nation thinks that history unfolded in a certain way, while another nation has a completely different version. Israelis and Palestinians have their own version of history. The Hutu and the Tutsi in Rwanda each had its own version of history. The Americans and the Germans each have a different version of history or a different interpretation of facts they agree on. Each thinks their version is true and the opposing version is false. And each group takes action on those stories. This is the reason for so many genocides. The Germans believed they were a superior race and that the world had to be cleansed of inferiors. From their perspective, they were doing a service to the world. 
the Hutu in Rwanda, believed that the Tutsis were cockroaches who were polluting their homes and villages. They honestly believed they were performing a service by killing the Tutsi, including their friends, neighbors, wives and children. Just as many of us believe that cockroaches pollute our homes and we reach for a can of Raid. I think that all of these versions are equally true or equally false. They are all story. Real truth has no opposite, because how can there be an opposite of what is? The very act of misunderstanding, misremembering or misrepresenting a fact takes place within the broader totality of what is. The duality of truth, falsehood, is splashed across the greatest screen of a non-dual truth that doesn't change and has no opposite. The brain cannot grasp this, which is why I call it a koan. Our stories are both real and unreal. Our karma is both real and unreal. That is the nature of koan. He goes on to talk about the role of memory and reincarnation, and in comparing Tibetan and Zen beliefs, makes some uninformed statements about what Tibetan lamas believe. He also talks about compassion in action, and his organization, the Zen peacemakers, but all that is a little beside the point to our current discussion. However, he ends up with this. In the Zen peacemaker's order, we commit ourselves to healing others at the same time as we heal ourselves. We don't wait to be peaceful before we begin to make peace. In fact, when we see the world as one body, it's obvious that we heal everyone at the same time that we heal ourselves, for there are no others. We heal our karma by healing ourselves. We heal ourselves by healing our karma. Part of that healing is recognizing our karma as story and seeing our story as everyone else's story as well. We are one story. In the Zen centers of which I'm abbot in the, and in the Zen peacemaker's order, we start our day's schedule with a verse of atonement. All karma ever committed by me since of old, due to my beginningless greed, hatred and delusion, Born of my action, speech and thought, now I atone for it all. After ch chanting this verse, we begin our morning meditation, and after that we go on to our daily peacemaking work and social action projects. How do we atone? By being at one. By seeing that ev at every moment a part of me is raping while another part is being raped. A part of me is wantonly destroying while, while another part is being destroyed. A part of me goes hungry while another eats to excess. We are all interconnected. We are all one. If we get stuck in anger, in blame and in guilt, then we are paralyzed. We can't act. When we get beyond those things, when we can forgive, then the right action arises by itself and we begin to take care of each other. In doing so, we shed our karma. In Buddhism, we say that we are all constantly transmigrating from one realm to the other at every minute. There's the hell realm and the realm of the gods. There's also the realm of the hungry ghosts. One of our images for a hungry ghost is a painfully thin person with a tiny mouth, a long narrow throat and an immense stomach. The hungry ghost is always hungry but has only a tiny capacity to absorb the nourishment that it needs. I am full of hungry ghosts. I am full of clinging, craving, unsatisfied spirits. Each part of me that is struggling in pain, unsatisfied, angry and unresolved is a hungry ghost. 
starving child, an abusive parent, a drug addict who kills to get his fix, a brutal mercenary. They are nothing but hungry ghosts, and they are all starving, struggling aspects of me. All karma ever committed by me since of old. Me is everyone and everything. Me is the SS guard, the victims marching to their death, the city inhabitants looking away. Now I atone for it all. I only have now in which to become at one with all these hungry ghosts, all these people who are none other than myself. I let go of guilt, blame and anger. I let go of fear and paralysis, and I take loving action. I let go of karma. I let go of my story. It may make it sound easy, but it takes a lot more than merely saying to let go of our inhibitions, our stories and so on. This is a long, slow road in which we will often make mistakes and take dead-end byways. It is said in the Mahayana tradition that the Buddha took three countless eons from his first compassionate impulse to become enlightened. An age of difficulty again, which Lama Tsongkhapa highlights with his phrase on karma. Nevertheless, there's no doubt that with determination, effort, and what His Holiness the Dalai Lama calls a long view, a very long view, we can also do it. In any case, I've presented these various descriptions of karma so that we can get an idea of the scope and depth of what is meant by the term. However we view it, we have to deal with it while trapped, willingly or not, in the inexorable processes of birth, aging, sickness and death. But Lama Tsongkhapa says our predicament doesn't stop with being swept along willy-nilly by the forked torrents while tightly bound by the chains of karma. We are also caught in the iron net of self-grasping egoism, completely enveloped by the darkness of ignorance. Now where is the center of the universe? Of course, if you consider this question from the point of view of an impersonal universe, it would be very difficult to answer. However, if you answer from a personal point of view, you must undoubtedly say yourself, you are the center of the universe. As long as we don't have an experiential understanding of Bernie Glassman's oneness of all beings, we necessarily see ourselves and others as separate, and the center of one's experience of the universe is oneself. Then, of course, it is inevitable that some things in the universe will be seen as friendly, others as dangerous, and the rest as innocuous, not worth much consideration. This mistaken understanding of separateness comes from an innate grasping at what Alan Wallace in his book Tibetan Buddhism from the Ground Up calls a self-sufficient, substantial I. In his book, Wallace writes about two types of ignorance, this self-sufficient I being the second. The first, he says, is a state of unknowing, specifically a lack of clear awareness, particularly with respect to our moment-to-moment experience. He writes, In each moment of our lives, countless psychophysiological events take place. Physical sensations arise and vanish throughout the body. Physical and mental feelings of pleasure, pain and indifference occur, and sensory and mental forms of consciousness arise in the constant state of flux, joined with a wide array of thoughts, inclinations, discriminations and so forth. He continues, All these mental events fluctuate with each moment as they arise and pass away, conditioned by events in the body and the environment, as well as by previous thoughts and emotions. In the meantime, tactile sensations occur in the body together with the associated feelings. 
The other sensory faculties of seeing, hearing, smelling and tasting operate with various degrees of dominance. In our day-to-day -day states of unclear awareness, we do not recognize the arising of these events moment by moment. We do not see their subtle and complex interrelationships, nor do we comprehend the nature or how they pass from existence. In short, our awareness of being alive in the world is very hazy. This is the first type of ignorance. Then the second is more dynamic and actively misconceives the event we have just described. Writes Wallace, Lacking a clear perception of the origin of thoughts, for example, this ignorance imputes the notion that I am thinking these thoughts. Similarly, it identifies physical and mental events as mine, and not seeing the interrelationships between them, it imputes I am in control of them. The body, consciousness, emotions, thoughts, all of these are regarded by ignorance as my possessions. And who is this I that ignorance designates as the master of the body and mind? If this I could speak, it would say something like this. I am the person in charge. My body and mind act according to my will. I am self-sufficient and exist among the transitory events of my body and mind, and I coordinate them into a meaningful whole. Although I too am subject to change, my own identity is more stable and enduring than the psychophysical events that I see as mine, for I have a past and I will have a future. Now this sense of I doesn't come from our environment and we don't learn about it in school or from our parents. From a Buddhist point of view, it is completely inborn. Of course, as we go through life, Wallace points out that we develop various arguments and theories that seem to confirm its existence. In this way, he writes, inborn ignorance defends itself with acquired ignorance. The Buddha declared that the sense of oneself as a self-sufficient substantial I which is in charge of body and mind, is a delusion. The notion of a self-existent personal identity is inborn, but it is also ignorant and acts as a source of suffering. This I that is so conceived does not exist at all. This sense of I makes us feel separate from others and our environment, and, as I said earlier, with that comes judgment into friend, enemy and stranger, resulting in actions that cause unending harm and suffering to ourselves and others. And that is where we'll have to stop today. For now, our time is up. Thank you for joining the program of today, and please tune in again next week. Remember, as we go, to dedicate all positive potential from our program to the enlightenment of all beings. Thank you, and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.